Support for the Double Dome podcast comes from the Sorrell College of Business at Troy University, where students become geeks, an acronym for globally aware, ethical decision makers, engaged with the business community, knowledgeable to compete, and successful in business and life. More information at troy.edu business. The opinions expressed on this program represent the viewpoints of individual authors or contributors and do not necessarily reflect those of Troy University. This is eConversations, a joint production of Troy Trojan Vision and the Manuel H. Johnson Center for Political Economy. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dan Sutter. Hello and welcome to eConversations. I'm your host, Dr. Dan Sutter of the Johnson Center for Political Economy at Troy University. The traditional residential college experience is something of a rite of passage for millions of Americans, a time of learning and growing up in uh, new experiences. Those of us who enjoyed college enough might well have signed on for additional years of study in graduate or post, uh, professional school. And yet higher education is also a $500 billion a year industry, with at least a quarter of this funding coming from taxpayers. So the rest of society can fairly question the value being produced by this industry. And higher education has in recent years become highly contentious, with many Americans now questioning whether college degrees are still worth the investment. After decades in which higher education had broad support across our uh, country. In addition, higher education has become politicized with Republicans and conservatives increasingly critical of the political indoctrination and partisan scholarship from universities. Joining me today on the show is Dr. Phil Magnus of the American Institute for Economic Research, who is a co-author, along with Jason Brennan, of a recent book, Cracks in the Ivory Tower. This book examines some of the serious and deep issues in higher education, but also provides an explanation for these problems in familiar economic terms. That is, in terms of the goals and incentives of students, faculty, and administrators who make up higher education. Dr. Magnus holds a PhD in public policy from George Mason University and works in the areas of economic history and intellectual history. He's authored dozens of academic journal articles, numerous op-eds in the Wall Street Journal and other uh, prominent publications, and several books. Welcome back to the show, Phil. Thanks for having me. Uh, let's start with your uh, your book here. And although I mentioned that there now is a, you know quite a bit of a controversy over liberal bias or progressive bias uh, emanating from universities, that's the, the the progressive element of universities is not what your books is really taking on, is it? Right. That's exactly the case. I mean, we decided when we were writing the book that we were not going to focus on the politics of higher ed. We were simply going to look at the institutions including bad institutional arrangements that yield outcomes that we uh, examine in depth and find that uh, are not particularly moral. They're not particularly uh, ethical in the way that they sell the product of higher education. And uh, that, that, you know, just because in this book you're not dealing with uh, elements of, of liberalness in the, in the academy, I do want to mention to viewers that you have dealt with that. You're a notable critic of a group called the New, Histori New History of Capitalism, uh, and, and, and you know you've also criticized or critiqued the 1619 Project. So you, you've certainly uh, taken on a lot of uh, low-quality scholarship that that is serving up uh, progressive causes. But that wasn't your task in this book. Absolutely, yeah. That, maybe that'll be volume two of uh, Cracks in the Ivory Tower. 
So you, you mentioned an element of immorality, and I wanted to get to that because I think one of the striking elements uh, of your book, and a, a good place to start our, our discussion with is, is today, is you know, you're really you're critical in critiquing some of the uh, claims that, that um, the universities typically make in, in a lot of their advertising to try to attract uh, students. And you know, really set questioning, you know, really raising the possibility this is highly deceitful uh, advertising. So tell us a little bit about this uh, this claim. Let's get into that part. Absolutely, and we call universities in the books uh, false advertisers. I mean, even worse than like the uh, the stereotypical used car salesman uh, mm -hmm. who's selling you a car that has all the problems under the hood, but presenting it as if it's basically a new product. Uh, and this really goes to the way that universities market themselves. And I don't target any specific university in the book, mm -hmm. although I give examples from uh, probably several dozen. Uh, what it gets to is they are always trying to sell their degree as if it's this life-changing, life-improving component of uh, knowledge that's delivered to the students. And you see this in slogans and advertising. You see it in the slick materials that universities pre uh, prepare and they mail out to uh high school students to try to recruit them to come there. Uh, it's always about if you come and get a degree from X university, you're going to be a better person. You're going to be a, a well-rounded citizen and you're going to make millions of dollars. And uh, this is your ticket to success in the future. Uh, but what, what we find out is if, if you dig beneath uh, the surface of these claims that are put out, uh, they're often like, quite fraudulent or, mm -hmm. or very misleading at the absolute best. Uh, what they obscure and what they hide is that the intellectual content that's delivered in, in university programs is never quite up to snuff compared to what they're claiming. Uh, they also obscure the fact that uh, what you major in has a very pronounced determinative effect on what your income is going to be after you graduate. Mm -hmm. uh, so, for example, if you work in, if you major in engineering or math and science or some of the STEM fields or some of the empirical social sciences, the uh, expected income level for your lifetime is much, much higher than if you major in poetry or theater or uh, some of the, uh, the, the humanities. But universities will never present it that way because they want you to uh, to partake in as many courses as possible during your time there because that means spending more money on tuition dollars. No, no. Obviously, a part of you know some of that is always going to be marketing. If you're you're you're, you're always trying to put forward your your best foot, but um, it, it, you know many times certainly uh, I often feel like marketing's always overblown. But um, absolutely, you you, have, you offer a really nice parallel uh, in in this uh, part of the book when you're talking about well, suppose that Pfizer or some other pharmaceutical company was advertising a new drug that they said uh, you know uh, saved all these. Uh, Case, you know, saved all these uh, or prevented all these illnesses. And what if they didn't have any evidence of that? And, and, uh, and that was a good way. And I think that's the best way to, to sort of like think about these uh, charges that you're raising against universities in their advertising. Yeah. Yeah. If we saw this in any other aspect of the private sector, uh, you know, the drug company example from the book, uh, but this could get into just about anything that's offered as a private product. Uh, if people advertise them the way that universities pitch their product, they'd be liable to lawsuits because they aren't delivering on what the promised claim is. It's almost like the old snake oil salesman from uh, the traveling mm -hmm. medical shows at the turn of the century. Uh, that They promise cures to every ailment and uh, take your money, give you a, a, a useless or if, if not even that, a harmful bottle of chemicals and then it never delivers on what it happens to do. Uh, you'd have grounds to sue that person. 
Uh, so we make the same point here in higher education and universities. If we actually held most universities to what they promised to deliver in their advertising material, their glossy brochures, um, it turned out that quite a few students have legitimate legal claims against uh, their universities for taking tens of thousands of dollars in tuition money and not actually delivering what they promised to deliver. And to understand, you know, to get into this a little bit further, if, if you have like some very smart uh, people who come to universities and, and then they go on to be successful in life, as you point out, the, the, you know, what the university is implying in their advertising is somehow being at the university, studying is somehow transforming this person into from somebody who wasn't going to make a lot of money into somebody who's now going to be highly successful. And that's not necessarily what's going on there. Uh, not, not at all. In fact, uh, we, we have clear empirical evidence that people that do tend to succeed in education in general, and this is everything from K through 12 all the way up to, uh, to higher education, are people that are generally good at uh, identifying tasks, performing tasks, uh, meeting stipulations, checking off boxes is essentially mm -hmm. what it is. As you have to check off X number of boxes of courses that you pass, and then you get a piece of paper saying that uh, you attain this knowledge. Uh, but what if we're do what if we're actually selecting for people that are simply uh, uh, intuitively good at working their way through uh, the course curriculum? And that's often what uh, what we find is uh, people that succeed in higher education uh, are generally intelligent, self-driven, self-motivated, uh, able to navigate structure uh, very well and uh, would emerge anyway as probably uh, uh, productive uh, contributors to their profession. But the university right. wants to take all the credit for the good and then they want to pretend as if the bad doesn't exist. And the bad is incurring tens of thousands of dollars of debt or getting a degree in a field in which there's no jobs, there's no opportunity to, uh, uh, to become like a professional poet. Uh, so university will never take credit for its failures. It'll never take credit for selling someone on a uh, degree that really isn't uh, delivering much to them, but it will claim credit if someone who is already inclined toward uh, what university life tends to inculcate, and it's, uh, it's patterns of uh, attending classes, succeeding at tests, uh, going on to the next level. Uh, if that person goes on and to get a Nobel Prize, of course the university will take credit for that. Well, and that, that segues into a, a next part of your, your research, of your, your book, and that is you know, looking at evidence of, of what is it or how much that, that students learn. And, and as a professor, Absolutely. that's sort of a disturbing to me because the, the evidence is uh, really quite sad in, in terms of uh, what, what students are, are supposedly learning. Absolutely. So the silver lining, I'll say on behalf of professors and anyone that's watching this, is students actually do pick up knowledge in the courses that they major in. Mm -hmm. uh, if they choose to be an economics major and they're taking advanced courses in that, that's actually where the learning takes place. But the critique that uh, we make in the book is that's roughly only half of the university experience. Uh, when you arrive on campus your freshman year, most of the classes you take are going to have absolutely nothing to do with your major. You may not have even chosen a major yet. In fact, the university tries to encourage you to uh, uh, dilly-dally around in all sorts of different uh, subject matters and discover your own path because that means you are paying more money for uh, classes and you're staying there longer. Uh, what we find, and there's robust empirical evidence behind this, is most of what we call gen ed classes, general education, that everyone must take X number of hours of history, 
X number of hours of writing composition, of English, of philosophy, uh, of all these uh, supposed core subjects that you're supposed to learn uh, to get a university degree. Well, most students view those as the blow-off classes. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't really pay much attention to them. Uh, they go in and they do the bare minimum to get the, the, the grade and check the box. Uh, oftentimes they cheat their way through those classes. And then as soon as the semester's over, they never think about it right. again. Uh, the evidence that we have on this comes from a book called Academically Adrift by Aram and Roxa. And these are two social scientists. And what they did is they, they took testing scores, standardized testing scores of a sa the same test that was administered before you start your freshman year for a cohort of students. And then they re-administer the same test at the end of your second year, the end of sophomore year. And they asked the question, is there a noticeable change in basic things like reading and writing skills, critical thinking, uh, all of the skills that are supposed to be taught in these gen ed core curriculum classes. And they find out that there's no difference between uh, when you started your freshman year and when you ended your sophomore year for the uh, majority of students. Uh, the only ones that really seem to, uh, to latch on to these particular subject matters are ones that are already majoring in those subjects anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, and the implication here is we are very inefficient at delivering the content that we claim is knowledge in the terms of degrees. Uh, we make people jump through hoops and take all these superfluous classes that uh, aren't really educating them, they aren't really delivering anything, but they do have another purpose. They generate money for the university. Uh, they generate tuition dollars, and those tu tuition dollars also generate faculty lines to keep people employed teaching English and history and philosophy and subjects that uh, probably wouldn't attract as many students if they were not mandated to actually sit in those classrooms. You, you mentioned this briefly, but it, it's a, another uh, chapter in your book, and it, it builds on this same story, and that's the, the problem of cheating, because uh, you know, students uh, may not be, you know, learning a lot, and, and some more evidence of that is the the, the uh, prevalence of cheating on, on many uh, campuses. Absolutely, absolutely, and, and you know, there's several studies that have been conducted on this, and most students admit at some point in their college career that they cheated on an exam, and oftentimes it's a, it's very minor cheating. It's uh, mm -hmm. it's something on a class that doesn't really matter much to them. And it's they stayed up the night before partying, and what do you do? Uh, well, uh, uh, you're taking an online exam, you Google the answers. And uh, what the evidence does seem to show, though, is that students are more inclined to cheat in classes that they don't care about, mm -hmm. uh, classes that don't really matter as much to them. Uh, and overall, I'd say that almost, uh, I'd say the vast majority of students do seem to cheat in some form. And then there's a smaller cohort of students that cheat quite a lot right. uh, that are uh, like the serial cheaters within there. And yes, you could say they're absolutely harming themselves in the long run because if they're going into a career in a specialized subject area, uh, they probably aren't learning the material uh, if they're cheating. But at the same time, I think it's endemic to the university system that uh, not only does it inculcate this type of behavior, it by and large seems to tolerate it. Right. Uh, you have extreme cases that are caught if you plagiarize your entire term paper uh, and it's obvious and blatant, yeah, there's a chance that you're going to get some academic penalty. But the pressure is on faculty, the pressure is on uh, administrators to actually look the other way. And I'm guessing you, you've probably seen this in your academic career. I saw it, certainly saw it in the, uh, the decade or so that I was teaching. Mm -hmm. uh, I caught people cheating. 
and uh, you have to go through a bureaucratic rigmarole to, uh, to actually bring the case against a, uh, a student for cheating. And the pressure there is, well, we don't really want to uh, uh, expel them or take a harsh penalty. We want to give them a second chance. Uh, that's usually coming down from the administration. And if you think about it, there's actually incentives for why this is the case. One of those incentives is if you're chasing off students for cheating, uh, they're no longer customers of the university. <laughs> they're no longer paying tuition. Right. Now, there, you know, we've, we've talked about the lack of you know, documentation of, of a lot of learning and, and then the problems of cheating. But then there is also, uh, from that standpoint, then perhaps a paradox, the, the fact that there, there, there's, ver there's also very good evidence that college degrees, not all college degrees, but certainly there, there are college degrees that are worth a lot of money, that even you know, trying to, to control for other things, that uh, a person who has the degree it has a much better earning potential than somebody without the degree. So how do we reconcile this? Yeah, so this comes back to a core concept from economics called public choice theory. And public choice theory is one of the great insights uh, in regulatory scenarios entry barriers are a very powerful economic device. Entry barriers could be uh, membership to an organization. It could be uh, like a licensing scheme to be able to be a welder or a hairdresser or a, um, a doctor, lawyer, things like that. All, all these major professions, uh, you have to, have to go through some sort of system to uh, get a certification or a, uh, a membership card that says you can work in this profession. And the idea here is to constrict the number of people that are eligible to mm -hmm. compete in that workforce. Well, university degrees basically operate in the same way. If most entry-level professional jobs require at minimum a bachelor's degree, and some of the higher level ones, uh, you have to get a law degree or a medical degree. And there's actually a rationale. I, I do want someone who's performing brain surgery to have a medical degree. Right. So I'm not saying scrap that system. Uh, I, I'd be very afraid of a doctor that doesn't have a, or a claimed doctor that doesn't have a true medical degree performing surgery. Uh, so it, it's kind of a, uh, uh, a bootleggers Baptist scenario in that sense that there's a rationale to have certifications for certain degrees uh, in certain professions, but at the same time, it's an entry barrier that constricts the workforce. So what effectively comes out of this is that uh, a college degree, even though even college degrees in areas that you are not learning very much, uh, that are uh, not delivering what these advertising slogans universities use uh, claim, uh, those college degrees are still useful in signaling that that person is able to jump through all the hoops, check all the boxes, right work through the different steps that are necessary to get a college degree and therefore is eligible to enter into the workforce for that profession. Uh, so that's where the value comes from is the constriction of uh, entry into the workforce, not so much the actual content that's delivered in the degree. Well, and I think you make a great point in that, I, I, you know, these regulations or occupational licensing often inter, uh, interact with uh, educational yes, requirements or they impose educational requirements. And I, I think that's one, you know, that's also one of the ways uh, irrelevant education requirements are, are going to be particularly subject to cheating because, you know, my, my thought is always, you know, what good would it be to cheat? You know, to both pay to enroll in truck driving school and then pay for somebody to take your classes, and someday you're going to get uh, you're going to get hired for a job to start driving a truck. And if you don't know how to put that truck in gear, then you you yeah. you know you that cheating really didn't help you at, at, at one bit. But you know when you have like 
things that are just hoops uh, and, and designed to keep some people out, then that's also a system that or places where you could expect to see a lot of cheating happen. Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, we, we have one uh, chapter in the book. We call it the Gen Ed Hustle. Uh, mm-hmm. And this pertains to these courses, what we call the blow-off classes. Uh, if you are trying to become a, uh, a chemical engineer, chances are pretty high that you don't need to spend uh, nine hours of coursework studying creative writing. Mm-hmm. But if your university requires that to even be able to advance to the, uh, the major in chemical engineering, you're paying out of pocket still all those tuition dollars for three semesters of a creative writing class just to check those boxes. And you may view them as a blow-off class in the sense that you aren't studying for them, you're turning in the bare minimum assignment, maybe even cheating just to get the grade, regurgitating back to the professor what they want to hear just to get the grade. And that sort of stuff is endemic and happens all over the place. I guess the uh, the short version of it is I would go so far as to argue that a the, uh, the level of knowledge conveyed by a typical American university degree uh, necessary for a professional trade or a field or uh, uh, some sort of a career tied to your major could probably de- be delivered in half the time right. that a typical student actually spends in higher ed. Yeah, yeah that, that's probably true. Now, you're talking about uh, general ed courses in, in, in rent seeking, I think gets into a nice another nice part of the book or a really nice aspect of your book in terms of trying to explain or provide a rationale for a lot of this. And we can sort of start by talking about, if you read uh, the, the Chronicle of Higher Education, which is a trade industry publication, you hear, you see story after story about you know, neoliberalism, corporatism, that uh, <laughs> universities are, are becoming too much like uh, corporations and business, and that's leading to all of these uh, ills that, that, that you're describing. But by contrast, if you approach stuff with the, the tools of an economist, you know, thinking about you know, trying to build explanations based on the behavior of individuals, a lot of this becomes uh, explanatory. You, know, you can explain a lot of this without relying on, on boogeymen or, or, or gob- hobgoblins or anything that, that are, are somehow controlling everything going on. That's exactly the case. Yeah, you read something like the Chronicle, it's it's almost a conspiracy theory version of what's wrong with higher ed. And it's, if we make higher ed less corporation-y, everything will be fixed. Uh, it's always claims like that. But what we find in the book, and there's quite a bit of evidence for this, is universities, the, the, the thing that they're most closely uh, reminiscent of in the real world in terms of their operations is not a corporation, it's not some nefarious uh, moneyed interest that's trying to extract profit. It's a government bureaucracy. A typical university administration has much more in common with the Department of Motor Vehicles than it does mm-hmm. with Exxon or Ford or Microsoft. Uh, it is inclined to bloat its bureaucracy, to uh, create new jobs in administration, and we see clear, unambiguous evidence of this since the 1970s to the present day. We show data that uh, that says university administrators and mostly the mid-tier administrators Mm -hmm. have basically quadrupled in size. Even though nothing has really changed in the type of education that's being provided, uh, we now have like four or five times as many administrators servicing the exact same university. And it's far outpaced enrollment. So uh, they're adding administrators at a higher rate than students and at a higher rate than faculty. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, what is this a sign of? It means that budget maximizing bureaucrats are really calling the shot and they're just expanding their footprint in superfluous ways on campus. And you see this all around us and like all the amenities that are offered. Uh, student services offices are much larger today than they were even 10 or 20 years ago. Uh, another front of it, we have uh, environmental sustainability offices and diversity offices have just exploded in the last decade. These are basically jobs creation programs for administrative bureaucrats. So one of the questions we ask is who pays for all this? Well, the answer is the students do and mm -hmm. the taxpayers by proxy. Student tuition dollars are shooting up through the roof. We already know about the student loan crisis. We already know about uh, debt that is incurred sometimes in the tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars to, uh, to get a university degree. And that is not really paying for the delivery of any special product other than maybe a university experience, but it is certainly sustaining the salaries of hundreds of thousands of university bureaucrats who are basically kind of milking off the system. And, and then you can also look at some of the incentives of other players in uh, higher ed. And faculty are important. We have faculty governance. But we're certainly, when we see things like, you know, we're, we're, you mentioned the lack of interest in necessarily catching cheating, that can be sort of explained by faculty incentives or what the faculty are most interested, which often is research. Absolutely. Yeah, so the, the typical university faculty aspires to a career at Harvard or Yale where they have a team of graduate assistants that actually do the grunt work of grading their courses and, and lecturing in the in the sessions. And meanwhile, they can sit in the library all day and absorb knowledge and uh, maybe churn out a book once every five years. Uh, that's the easy life. That's like the idealized life of, of faculty. And they won't tell you that that's what they aspire to, but uh, that, that's the, the lifestyle that right. actually uh, gets uh, inculcated. Uh, what it does, though, uh, is it creates perverse incentives in the way that faculty govern and structure themselves. Uh, so, for example, uh, the typical faculty member does not want to be teaching Survey of American History 101. They want to be teaching the specialized class that's most closely related to their own research. Mm -hmm. Uh, they don't. They also don't want to be spending uh, three or four days a week in the classroom teaching class after class after class. They'd rather farm that out to a grad student. Uh, grad students turn out to be very cheap labor. Uh, so what it does is it incentivizes faculty to create PhD programs that boost their own prestige, brings in a right. team of grad students they can use as TAs uh, and research assistants and do all the grading and stuff that they don't want to do. And those grad students get issued a PhD and they enter into a market where there are no jobs. Right. So you have a, a super abundance of PhD creation, not because there are actual jobs in the university system to hire all these PhDs, but because university faculty value the prestige and the, and the, the cheap labor that they get from grad students of yeah. uh, admitting dozens of people over and over again into the program. So I was, I was uh, actually in a conversation just the other day where someone mentioned at an Ivy League institution that uh, the history department had a, an opening cohort in this person's class of 35 students, 35 new history PhDs. And they were complaining, this is one department at an elite institution. They were complaining there's basically no jobs to employ these students uh, at, when they all graduate. So uh, why, is, why is this elite institution bringing in 35 students? Well, that's 35 TAs for all their existing uh, faculty. It 
and then you, you, know, you can also you know, consider the, the, the part of it with cheating. You know, if a faculty member wants to be doing research on that book, they don't want to be in a bunch of hearings uh, trying to impose a, a penalty on a, a student because the student's uh, protesting that, that they're going to get penalized for cheating. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's minimizing the burdens of administration on themselves, maximizing the time that they could uh, get away from the classroom, doing their research, doing things that interest them. Or if they have to be in the classroom, it should be a course that's a higher level right. specialty course on what interests that professor. Yeah. And, and there, there is a lot of prestige. Uh, you mentioned the prestige, and it certainly is. If, if you're at a PhD granting institution, you're high up on the ch uh, food chain in, in higher ed. And, and you know, I mean, I, I guess our salaries aren't always so great, it, it, you know, aren't, aren't the highest. So prestige ends up mattering a lot uh, to, to us Absolutely. academics. Absolutely. And, and, uh, it, and so you know, we re really take that kind of thing stuff very seriously. And just uh, yep. one other thing to, to mention, you, know, you mentioned a little bit of research on uh, student evaluations, because you might think like, okay, if, if teaching is, is an important part of the university, surely we would have some way of knowing which teacher, which professors are, are the best teachers. But the, the evidence isn't really there, is there? Right, right. So these student evaluations, they're supposedly used as like feedback forms on your course, where you're supposed to say how much you learned or how well the, the, the professor did. Uh, what we find, and there's several empirical studies, again, that have looked at this, is that there's basically no relationship between strong evaluations and teaching quality. In fact, what evaluations tend to reward are easy graders. Uh, every professor that I know knows the trick. On the day that you give evaluations, maybe they'll show up in class with a tray full of cookies or candy or something to pass out right before the evaluation, and that makes the students more inclined to give them higher ratings. Uh, there were also evidence that uh, sometimes evaluations have gender and racial bias in them. Mm -hmm. uh, this is uh, some more recent research, even our book came out that's been studying this. Uh, but basically, we make, we make the case that not only are evaluations bad metrics to use, they're immoral metrics to mm -hmm. use because making hiring decisions on a piece of false data or useless data um, actually distorts away from merit, which is where the focus of hiring should be. Well, thanks so much for coming on and, and talking about this with us. Uh, and thank you all for joining us. Join us again next That's time for another eConversations. This has been eConversations, a joint production of Troy Trojan Vision and the Manuel H. Johnson Center for Political Economy at Troy University. Support for the Double Dome podcast comes from the Sorrell College of Business at Troy University, where students become geeks, an acronym for globally aware, ethical decision makers, engaged with the business community, knowledgeable to compete, and successful in business and life. More information at troy.edu business.